0: listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. So, I I grew up in and many of you know this about me. I grew up in old-school sweaty Pentecostal churches. Sweaty because we went to church dressed to the nines. You know, we went to church like we looked like a million bucks. But when we got done, it looked like we'd been in a bar fight. Like it was, like we we came out of there. You know, if we w- went in wearing a tie, we came out without one. Right? We if we went in with our hair neatly combed, we came out with it. Yeah, you know, sweaty and snotty and red-faced. I mean, We went to church and we had church. Does anybody know? Any experience of this? So, one of the things we, one of the reasons it was so intense, and some of you will identify with this, some of you may be triggered by this, so trigger warning, that we, we pressed in. So, even as a little kid, I mean, young, 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 younger than my youngest is now, we would come to the altar service, and we would stay until God moved, which sometimes meant until we fell asleep if we were young. And like in my case, more than once in my life, I, was, I would fall asleep, my, I would wake up at home, or, or my parents carry me into the house. But we would try to pray through until you had this experience of being baptized in the Holy Ghost. Now, these old school Pentecostals, they did not say baptism in the Holy Spirit. They said Holy Ghost, right? Can I get an amen from anybody? Amen. Anybody know what I'm talking about? If you don't know, that's fine. You can just smile and nod. But those of us who do know, like we've got some scars from it, And some wonderful memories, too. So we we would pray for this to happen. And even if you had already been filled, you needed a refilling. So even if, you know, on Saturday night you had prayed through and spoken in tongues and the Spirit had blessed you, guess what you had to do on Sunday night? You had to do the same thing. You had to get right back into that, press deeply into it, and let the Spirit move on you. One of the things that was happening, it was normal at the time, it didn't seem strange now that I look back it seems pretty odd is that whenever you were in that situation young or old or middle aged I noticed by the way that Robbie introduced me as an old friend <laughs> and having just turned 47 last Sunday in fact that hit a little differently but not, not quite 50 yet so that people would gather around you so if, if, you're, if you're there and you're laid out on the floor or kneeling at the altar people would, would gather around you and in one ear you would hear somebody saying hold on Hold on, which I think roughly translated to stay in this moment, like lean in, be more intense, if anything, try harder, if you can. Hold on, hold on. And in the other ear, you would hear somebody saying, let go, let go, which I think now translates to something like, whatever it is you're, you're resisting, whatever part of you is resisting God, yield that. But it was a little strange. Can you imagine someone who didn't know that culture, just walking in and what you see is a bunch of sweaty, kind of close askew people gathered around. A wooden bench or on the floor and some people are yelling hold on and other people are yelling let go like what in the world could that possibly mean right but somehow when you're inside of it you know like you intuit I'm supposed to do this and this but now that I'm, I'm somewhat removed from that I mean somewhat removed I mean I still consider myself a Pentecostal I still am open to the move of the spirit it's not quite as dangerous to go to church now as it used to be <laughs> thankfully I'm glad for that But there's a way in which I recognize a wisdom in those words. Hang on and let go. And that somehow the whole of the spiritual life, the whole of the life God has called us to live, is the playing out of how to hold on and when and how to let go and when. When do I hold? When do I release? When do I cling and when do I yield? When do I press in and when do I step back? And that's what I think the story, the reading we heard today, the story of Moses gives us. It maps the way in which God draws our lives out. This is what the name Moses means, drawn out. The way in which God draws our lives out and then weaves us together. That The whole of your life is, is like a fabric. It's, something, it's a tapestry God is weaving. And to do that, he's got to stretch you out over time. And that may be a few years. It may be decades For some of us, it may be many decades, but God stretches your life out, and then through the course of your life, you're having to let go and hold on as God weaves your life together. You see that image? So let's think together then about Moses. Now, one more thing about my youth as a Pentecostal. The preachers did not use notes because we were led by the Holy Ghost, right? I remember one of the first times I preached outside of my home church, I was I think 16, something like it, 15 or 16. They let me preach way too soon. Like, like, probably shouldn't be allowed right now, but I certainly shouldn't have been allowed at 15 or 16. And it, I mean, we're family, so it's safe here. But the, I'm, I'm speaking outside of my church for one of the first times, and I use notes because I wanted to do well. And people got up and left because they saw that I was using notes. right? So you don't need to leave today. No notes, right? You're, you're safe. You can stay here. And I won't force you to seek for the Holy Ghost at the end of this either, right? Like we'll, we'll come to the table instead. All right. But here's, here's what I want to do. I want to talk for just a few minutes about the story of Moses as a kind of pattern of letting go and holding on and to give you a sense of what's going to happen in your life and, and not just happen, but happen over again and again and again at different levels, right? So when God tells a story, in some ways it has a shape that gets worked on small levels and large levels on the mac- on the micro scale and the macro scale and it is always this story of being drawn out and being woven together by letting go and holding on so the story we heard today is a story right at the beginning of Israel's wilderness wandering how many years was Israel in the wilderness 40 years right So, 40 years, this is right at the cusp of it, right at the very beginning. Just a couple chapters before, Israel has come through the sea. They've come to the mountain of God. We've just begun that journey. And two chapters earlier than this, Israel complains because there is no water. One chapter before this, Israel complains because there is no food. And now, we hear Israel complaining again because there is no water. I mean, they're in the wilderness. This is what happens when you're in the wilderness, So they're just beginning the journey, and already we've had complaint, grumbling, complaint. In fact, one translation says, one way of translating this is, Israel stopped grumbling so they could complain. Like, we're we're, we're done grumbling about the lack of food, now let's complain about the lack of water. But, I mean, in their defense, you do need water. It's kind of important. And they're in the wilderness. And a lot of stuff is new to them. I mean, just... A week ago, maybe a little more, but not too long, they are slaves in Egypt and had been for generations. And now the world is open, but they've been swallowed up by this wilderness. And it's, it's a terrifying, frightening place, especially for people who've not navigated this. I mean, we read this text, and we read it with some cool distance. And it's easy to mock them. It's easy to, to be snide. But imagine what it's like to be in their sandals what it's like to be inside that experience, right? So they're, they're complaining to, about, to Moses, we need water. And you know the story, Moses cries out to God. First of all, he has a little bit of a bicker with them. And he says, why are you, why are you challenging me? The text actually, all it says is they, they complained to Moses and said, give us water, which I mean, I have kids. My kids are, they say more than give us water. So I'm guessing that the writer kind of edited that out like what they actually said. But there's a little bit of back and forth between Moses and Israel. But then God gives him direction. Go strike this rock. Water will come from the rock and people will drink. And this is the place though in which there's a challenge put to God. Is the Lord among us or not? So that's, that's the first story. If you go to the very end of the wilderness journey, the last little bit, we get that exact same story again. That exact same story again this generation that had the water from the rock in the first case has died off and now their children are stepping into those roles and at the very end of those 40 years Miriam dies she's the first of those three Miriam Aaron and Moses who will die Miriam dies and Israel complains again we have no water except now these are the children of the people who complained the first time it's the same place they come to the wilderness of sin Which I love that, the wilderness of sin. I I speculated this morning that perhaps that was like a place where sin was allowed, like the wilderness of sin. Not really, I don't think that at all. But um, I couldn't resist. They come to the exact same place in the wilderness and they have the exact same experience that their parents had. And they have the exact same response. They have the exact same response. Now one of the things that I'm realizing at 47 years old is I am my father's son. Right For good and ill. And there are all kinds of ways. My kids remind me of this. My wife <laughs> reminds me of this. Sorry, Julie. I, I see this in myself. Like, I sound like my dad. And that's mostly good. Dad, if you're listening, it's mostly good. But there are times of like, oh, is that, do I have that too? It used to annoy me when I was at home. And now I'm doing it to my kids, right? That, that same honoriness that my dad had toward me, I have toward my kids. I sound like him. And that's what's happened to Israel. Right? This, is the gener- this is the chosen generation. This is the generation that's going to go into the promised land. But they sound just like their parents. Right? And in this case, it's not good. But they're in the exact same place of need. And Moses' response is almost exactly the same. He goes in. He and Aaron go in to pray. The Lord tells him, we're going to do again what we did 40 years ago. Right? So go out. And command the rock to give water. Same place, same rock, command it to give water. But what does Moses do? We all know the story. What does he do? He goes out and he strikes it twice. Right? He strikes it and strikes it again. And from this, he's apparently grieved or angry or both. And water comes and the people drink. But something happens between Moses and God. And what does God say to him? Because you did not honor me in the presence of the people, you will not be able to enter the land. And it's this—it's—it's it's, it's a bit shocking, right? That I mean, I'm here. Let me speak on behalf of Moses. I mean, it's a little annoying to have led these people for forty years back to this place, and now the children are saying the exact same thing that the parents said. It's—it is. I can see where he would be annoyed where he would be put out. One, put out with them. Two, God, can't you just get us through this already? Why do you need to put me on trial in front of all of them? But he doesn't speak to the rock. He strikes it it twice. It's probably because, you'd have to, it's Numbers 20 if you want to read it on your own. It's probably because Moses is not dealing with his grief. His sister dies and no one mourns for her. In fact, when Aaron dies, no one mourns for him. Miriam dies, there's no mourning, immediately the people complain for water. And so Moses is in a vulnerable place, right? Not only is he having, he's an old man now, not only has he been dealing with these people all of his life, the last 40 plus years of his life, but also he's dealing with their children now, and they're turning out to be no better, and his sister has just died, And he's, again, he's an old man. I don't know. Not every old person becomes cranky. My grandparents became sweeter. But, I mean, there are some folks that get a little crankier. And I think that might be some of what's at play with Moses, too. But he loses his place in the promised land, or seems to. Now, what's happening there in that stretching out, the letting go and the holding on? So, before before we kind of see how it ends, let's go back to the beginning I told you already, Moses' name means drawn out. And you remember who draws him out? Pharaoh's daughter. It's striking that at the beginning of Exodus, it is Egyptian women. Almost certainly the midwives are Egyptians. And certainly Pharaoh's daughter is. It's Egyptians that save Israel from themselves and save Israel from the Pharaoh. It's these Egyptian women, these African women, who save Israel. From Pharaoh on the one hand, and from themselves on another, And he's drawn out. Pharaoh's daughter draws him out of the water. And that's why she names him, she gives him an Egyptian name, Moses, the one who's drawn out. And then almost immediately, I mean, there's a bit of an exchange between her and Miriam that connects back to Moses' mother. We don't know, though, exactly what kind of relationship Moses had with his birth family. We don't know, the text doesn't tell us, and there's all kinds of speculation in the tradition, but the text doesn't tell us about what Moses knew about the fact that he's a Hebrew, that he belongs to those slave people, how much time he has with his mom, who's the nurse for him. As far as we know, he grows up speaking the language of the pharaohs, dressing like a pharaoh. For him, this is his family. He has some sense of it, though, somehow, because when he's 40 years old, He steps out and sees the oppression of his people. Now, what we don't know is when did he learn that these are my people? Did he know all of his life and struggle with it? Or did he step out suddenly as an adult and know this is, this is who I am? We don't know, but he does know. Somehow he steps out, he sees the oppression of his people. And you remember what's happening, right? There's a fight between an Egyptian and a Hebrew. And what does Moses do? Do you remember? He kills the Egyptian. He intervenes and he kills the Egyptian. Now what the writer is doing, what the writer of Exodus is doing, is drawing us an attention to the fact that what happens outside of Moses is a mirror of what's happening inside of him. That there's an Egyptian and a Hebrew fighting inside of Moses. And when he steps out and sees that conflict, his instinct is to kill a part of himself to destroy the Egyptian in himself. And again, it's not hard to imagine if you've grown up moving in both of these worlds, but worlds that are opposed to each other. I mean, in some some places, in some cultures, you can hold all that together. But if you are a son of Pharaoh and a son of slaves, you can't hold those two things together. You can't live in the plantation house and be one with the people in the fields at the same time. You can't hold those together. And so he's deeply conflicted. And he kills the Egyptian. Kills the Egyptian outside of him. Tries to kill the Egyptian inside of him. But what happens the very next day? He goes back out. Notice he went back home for the night. The next day he goes back out. And what does he see? You remember? Two Hebrews fighting. Two Hebrews fighting. And when he goes to intervene and says... Why are you fighting each other? You're family. You're one. What do they say to him? Will you kill us as well? Right? So what is he learning? You can't run from this conflict. You can't kill this. God can integrate it, but you can't destroy it. The conflicts that are in you and me, they either are resolved by God or they destroy us. But we can't save ourselves from them. You kill the Egyptian in yourself, and the conflict will start again the next day. There is no way for you or for me to solve the conflicts that are in us because of who we are, because of the histories we've lived, because of who our parents were, because of the world we grew up in. Like, only God can draw that together. And so the story of Moses' life from that, 40, that moment at his 40th birthday all the way to the end, the next 80 years, is the story of God resolving those things drawing them together, weaving it together so that Moses is able to be Moses, the son of the Pharaoh's daughter, Moses, the man of power, Moses, the leader, and Moses, the slave, Moses, the son of Abraham, Moses, the Egyptian, Moses, the Hebrew. God weaves them together. But it takes 80 years, and it takes Moses constantly letting go and holding on, letting go and holding on. And what happens at that second scene, when he strikes the rock twice, is a failure to let go. A failure to just leave room for God. Notice the first time it happened, he was told to strike the rock. The second time, he was told to speak to it. But he reenacted, he doubled down on what he did the first time. And this causes this interruption And it's at that point, so this is Numbers 20, from this point on, Moses and God are in a back and forth. God, will you change your mind? Can you imagine Moses hearing from God, you're not going to enter the promised land. After all this that you've lived, you're not going there. And the text tells us that at least a few times, Moses argues with God. Reconsider. Reconsider. And the rabbis speculate that it was hundreds of times. In fact, different rabbis have different theories about exactly how many times, 700 times, whatever the case might be. He's arguing with God over and over and over again. God, give me a second chance or an eighth chance or whatever number of chance this happens to be. But it doesn't happen. The very, very end of his life, 120 years old, what happens with Moses? He goes up on the mountain. He goes up on Mount Pisgah, which is the peak of Nebo. He looks into the land And he dies. He dies actually at the kiss of God. The word of the Lord takes his life. And the images of God. You know how in the beginning God breathes into Adam the breath of life? In Moses' case, he breathes it out of him. Face to face. Now, I'm going to come back to Moses in a moment. Dietrich Bonhoeffer. The day he found out or within a couple of days of finding out that he was not going to be released from prison. You remember, he's in prison. He's hoping to either escape, there is a plan for him to escape, or to be released. Because there's no proof that he was a part of this plot, this larger conspiracy against Hitler. But then he gets word that that the Gestapo has found proof. They found the documents that prove his name was on the list. He's one of the people who were involved in this larger conspiracy. We don't know exactly what his involvement was. He might have simply been a chaplain to this larger conspiracy. We don't know how much he knew, but he was on the list. Now the Gestapo can prove it. He knows he's not getting out of this prison. You know what he did? He wrote a poem about the death of Moses. When when he had this recognition, I'm not getting out of here alive, the story of Moses came to him. And he writes this rather long poem about what Moses is thinking, how he's praying, knowing he's not going into the promised land. And it's pretty obvious what's happening here, right? Bonhoeffer had been, he was only 38 years old, 38 years old. He's anticipating being there for the rebuilding of Germany, for the renewal of the church on the other side of Hitler. And now he knows I won't be there. I'm not making it there. So he turns to the story of Moses. About 20 years later, Martin Luther King Jr., the night before he was killed, stood up in Memphis, Tennessee, you know the story, and he says at the end of his speech, I've been to the mountain. I've been to the mountain. Now, what's striking is that in the course of that last paragraph of of King's speech, he says the mountain, but he really means two different ones. Mine eyes have seen the glory. That's the Mount of God. That's Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai. That's the place where Moses sees God's glory, where Moses comes down with his face shining. Mount Nebo is the mountain where Moses looks into the Promised Land. And in that final word, those two mountains have become one. They have been woven together. In King, those two mountains are one mountain. So as he stood in Memphis, a city named for the capital of Egypt, Speaking on the behalf of workers who were exploited, on the behalf of people who were being treated like slaves, he became Moses. I may not get there with you, but I've seen the promised land. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. What's happened? He's become Moses. Moses. How is that possible? Because here's what Moses learns. That second striking of the rock is not the end of Moses' story. His arguing with God in the aftermath of that judgment is not the end of Moses' story. The end of Moses' story is what happens on Nebo. You see, at the very beginning of Moses' ministry, he's the man of power. What does he say to Pharaoh? Let my people go. And it takes grit. It takes sand to do that. To stand in the face of the most powerful man and the most powerful court in that world and say, let my people go or else. I've heard Robbie preach about this more than once, and I love it. That Moses does not say to Pharaoh, let me bring water to the slaves. He does not say, let me help take and ease some of their burden. He does not try to provide some comfort to the slaves he says let my people go and we need some of that grit we need some of that intensity that grip that insists I'm not going to let go until you bless me and one of the things that makes Moses Moses is that he will stand there and fight if he has to even with God when God says to him in the midst of the wilderness I'm done with these people I'm going to destroy all of them and start over with you. Moses does to God what he had done to Pharaoh. No, let my people go and you go with us or we're not going. I'm not going if you don't let us all go and if you don't go with us. You've got to have that in you. You've got to have that in you. You've got to have enough fight in you that whenever comes, adversity comes against you, you don't wilt in the face of it. In the face of sickness, in the face of judgment, in the face of critique, in the face of just circumstances. you got to have some of that in you. I'm not going to let go until you bless me. Let my people go. you got to have that. But, but, the faith it takes to say to Pharaoh, let my people go, is nothing compared to the faith it takes to actually let the people go. Because standing there... Confronting Pharaoh, Moses is the leader of Israel. They're his people. Standing there facing God, Moses has Israel. They're his people. But now, he's got to realize they're going to reach their promise without me. And it takes so much more faith to be open-handed than it does to be closed-fisted. There are times to be closed-fisted. There are, but this is so much harder than this. And it takes so much more faith. John the Baptist, it takes a lot of faith to say this is the Lamb of God. It takes a lot more faith to say he must increase and I must decrease. And part of the weaving together of our lives, especially as we get closer and closer to the end of it, is that in the beginning, there's a lot more holding on than there is letting go. And at the end, there's a lot more letting go than there is holding on. And when Moses lets the people go. Now, interestingly, in Deuteronomy, we don't, we're not told that Moses says a word. I love this about the text. When Moses goes up that mountain for the last time, he's been arguing with God nonstop. But that last day, he doesn't say a word. It's just him and God on the mountain And he's looking into the future. And he doesn't have to say a word. Because he sees they're going to get there. I may not get there with you. But you're going to get there. And he lets them go. Stunning thing is, this same pattern plays out in the life of Jesus. This holding on, this letting go, this being drawn out, being woven together. And in the days before he dies, Jesus is on a mountain. On the Mount of Transfiguration. And who is there? Moses, Moses, inside the promised land. He's completed that journey somehow in Christ. Moses is there. And why does Jesus want him there? Because Jesus has to let go. God has to let go. In the dance that is the shaping of this creation, God is letting go as we are holding on. And Jesus has to do that. And he wants Moses there to talk through it. And Elijah. Same story for Elijah. Here's the stunning thing. As he's on the cross, Gospel of John, as he's on the cross, Jesus sees his mother... And the disciple whom he loves. What does he do? He lets go. Mom, son, son, mom. He's letting go. Now, given who Mary was and who John was, that probably wasn't too hard. I mean, he he can trust John and he can trust his mom. You know, the thing that's really remarkable is that he trusted himself and his word to Peter now that's letting go, right? I mean, John and Mary, I, could, I mean, that's easy, right? But he's going to let his church rest in the hands of Peter. Think about what that means. Think about the absurdity of God and how much you mean to him. And he's entrusted you to this right now, to me, to Robbie, to this team. God is always letting go. God lives with open hands. And if we're going to have the kind of life that's woven together, if we're going to resolve that conflict in ourselves, you've got to have that resolve. You've got to have the grit, but you also have to have the release. You've got to be able to, to hold on when it's time to hold on and let go. I'm done with this. Thank you for staying with me. Probably my fa- my favorite picture, certainly one of my favorite photographs, is from the day that I was priesthood. In fact, and I don't know who took the photograph. They certainly couldn't have done it on purpose. It's too it's too perfect to have been done intentionally. But in this picture, which is taken kind of from that angle, as if Robbie were taking it, I am giving communion to my youngest Emery, who was seven at the time, and he's literally on tiptoes, and his face is just absolutely brilliant and he's got his hands out and I'm giving him the body of the Lord and he's literally on tiptoes with his hands open like this and his eyes are bright and his face is shining and I'm crying you can see all this in the, in the, the image and that's what's obvious but if you look behind so where Maddie is you can see the back of my father walking away who I just served and now he's walking away You can see his shoulders and the back of his head. And that image of a father feeding the son while his father walks away having eaten, like that is the shape our lives have to take. And I wouldn't be able to give to my son if my father hadn't given to me and let go. And my son won't be able to give to the next generation if I don't know how to let go today when we come to this table in just a few minutes if I'll shut up, we're going to enact that. We're going to enact that weaving together. We're going to take bread and wine that are made from the weaving of natural things. And then we're going to give and take. We're going to open our hands and close them. We're going to take it in. And what I want you to leave today knowing is that God absolutely trusts you. God lives with open hands with you. God does not have a grip on you until you need him to hold you. There are times in which you will, if you need him to, but God is not gripping you. And you have to learn to have that exact same release. And when you do, what happens in that holding on and letting go is suddenly God resolves. God resolves. For some of us it may happen now. For some of us it may not happen fully until the end. It didn't for Moses until his last day. But on that last day, he found his peace. And it's that that located him in Christ. And then back to Martin Luther King. When you do that, you think Moses on that day Santa and Ebo could have had any idea what was going to happen with his people. but That's the salvation of the world. And all I have to do is let go. All I have to do is release. And God's not going to save just my people. He's going to save all people. He's not just going to save this generation and bring them to a land. He's going to save every generation and fill the whole earth with his glory and all i have to do is let go let me pray for you god you are good you are so gentle with us so open with us and it's hard god it's hard for us to have that same openness and you know why Some of us today are in a hold on moment and I want you to strengthen us for that holding. Some of us are in a moment in which what's needed is sand and grit and fight and I want you to empower us for that. But others of us are in the let go moment, a moment of gentleness and release and yielding and strengthen us for that. And for all my brothers and sisters here, Reassure them that you are weaving their lives together. And when you are done, and when they are done, there will be peace. And you will be all in all. Amen. We hope you were blessed by today's podcast.